Greetings and salutations. I hope your day is both tranquil and fulfilling. I am Athanasius, and welcome to the podcast of The Boldly Immortal. Today, I'm going to delve into politics a little bit and history a little bit to try and unpack a personal experience that ties in with a particular book that I'm reading. Longtime listeners to the podcast may know that I uh, referenced War and Peace in the past, and I am a big fan of Russian novels. Uh, War and Peace, Crime and Punishment, The Brothers Karamazov. Uh, those are the ones that, that I think I've that, that, that I've read. And I'm currently in the middle of The Idiot. Um, Dostoevsky is just absolutely a fantastic author. But what makes him particularly interesting to me at this moment is his exploration and understanding of the Russian spirit in his age and his foresight to speak of the spiritual malaise and the the cultural destruction that was going on amongst the people themselves. And, And he writes The Idiot in 1868, or at least it's published in 1868. And it's fascinating to see the topics that his characters are wrestling with and the different interplay of ideas that they are trying to work through. So I'm just going to read a small passage um, from this. It's, it's a section that struck me relatively deeply because of its pertinence to the modern era. Quoting from a story uh, told in the midst of a uh, company of mixed people and and trying to have effectively dinner conversation, a post dinner conversation, um, they're talking about a a murder case because they're trying to explore what's going on with their culture, and there's a uh, a story then mentioned by one of the members of the dinner party. He, that is referring to another person, just spoke now about an individual case. This phrase of ours is a very significant one. One often hears it. Everyone is talking and writing of late about that dreadful murder of six persons by that young man and of the strange speech made by the counsel for the defense, in which it was said that, considering the poverty of the criminal, it must have been natural for him to think of murdering these six people. These are not precisely the words used, but the sense, I think, is that, or very much like it. In my pri- it's my private opinion that the lawyer who gave expression to this strange idea was under the conviction that he was expressing the most liberal, the most humane, and progressive sentiment that could be uttered in our day. Well, what do you make of it? Is this corruption of ideas and convictions? Is the possibility of such distorted and extraordinary view an individual case or a typical example. The speaker then directs his question specifically to the main character of the book. And he responds uh, after a short interlude. I only meant to say that a perversion of ideas and conceptions, as the character uh, who had spoken previously expressed it, is very often to be met with is unhappily far more the general rule than an exceptional case. And so much so that if this perversion was not such a general phenomenon, perhaps there would not be such impossible crimes as these. The original speaker retorts, impossible crimes? 
But I assure you that just such cases, and perhaps still more awful ones, have existed in the past and at all times, and not only among us, but everywhere, and, in my opinion, will occur again and again for a very long time. The difference is that there was much less publicity in Russia in the old days, while now people have begun to talk and even to write of such cases, so that it seems as though these criminals were a recent phenomenon. That's how your mistake arises, an extremely naive mistake, Prince, I assure you. The, the speaker says with a mocking spi- smile. And the prince responds, and this is really what, what I, I wanted to, to get to, but that's the context. I know that there were ma- very many crimes, and just as awful ones in the past. I have been lately in the prisons, and succeeded in making acquaintance with some criminals and convicts. There are even more terrible criminals than that one, men who have committed a dozen murders and fe- feel no remorse whatsoever. But I tell you what I noticed that the most hardened and unrepentant murderer knows all the same that he is a criminal. That is, he considers in his conscience that he has acted wrongly, even though he is unrepentant. And every one of them was like that, while those whom the original speaker was speaking refuse even to consider themselves as criminals and think that they are in the right and that they have even acted well. It almost comes to that. That's, to my thinking, where the terrible difference lies. And observe, they are all young, that is, they are all of the age in which one may most easily and helplessly fall under the influence of perverted ideas. Boy. Now, I'm going to try and unpack that because that's a lot of text for people who aren't necessarily used to listening to that kind of uh, speaking. And I'll admit I made a few... uh, errors and uh, editorial things to make it sound better on the podcast here and there. Uh, highly recommend you read the book. It's a Russian novel, so it's a, it's properly, you know, long, but definitely worth it. Especially in, in days where not only are we socially a little bit more like Russia in the old days, you know, you don't go outside during the winter, you, you know, you, you do what you got to do, get some food and, you know, get indoors if you're, if you're lucky. Uh, but socially, we also... Uh, are entering this this era of turmoil that is reminiscent of that. I, I listened to a podcast recently uh, where two people were talking about the political machinations of our leaders and saying, read the Russians, read the Russians, that these guys were saying they had their finger on this when it was happening to them. Let's Let's use their wisdom and not fall into the trap. So, again, 1868. Right, about 50 years before the Bolshevik Revolution. We've got time. But what is he seeing? The story is of a murderer who not, who, whose defense attorney is not making the case that the, mur- the, the murderer didn't do the murder. He's saying that the murder was justified. He's saying, oh, it's, it's only natural that he should try and kill these people. He's destitute. It's okay. You can't blame the man for doing what is in his, is, what is in his nature. And the, the question is, is this normal, effectively? that This is the question that they're dealing with at this dinner party. Now, if we have 50 years left before our own revolution, ah, that would be fantastic. That gives us time. That gives us time. Food for thought. Uh, but they're sitting there discussing this case, and, and Prince Mishkin, who is the main character of the novel, has this, this thought where he's, he's effectively dealing with 
a couple of characters who aren't necessarily trying to be serious. They're not trying to have a serious conversation. They're more just trying to have good fun and enjoy the evening. And, and they're bringing this up because it's, well, it's interesting, right? It's drama. It's political drama. And they find the topic engaging. But he actually considers this because he's a man who has the, such a character to explore these ideas and to discuss them. And, I mean, he is the idiot of the, the title. And the book is, is exploring his, his nature and his, his folly um, in his wisdom and, and the madness of the world around him, frankly. So, obviously, it's, and, and just to caveat, it, the author was, uh, is Russian Orthodox in his uh, theology. And so there is some interesting theological stuff that ties in with this. But to get back to the, the story, the, the response he gives is that there's such there's there's a worry because he's he believes that this is that, that that yes atrocities are normal atrocities do happen atrocities occur with some regularity as they always have there have always been evil men doing evil things and we forget that at our own peril it is in the in the balance of security and freedom, we do need to remember the necessity of security. Uh, I, I often find myself overemphasizing the value of freedom, but the world is truly dangerous, and the dangerous men will find ways to do what they can. But what Mishkin then refers to is that there's a particular devilish nature to this particular case that when the the defense argues that he is actually justified in committing evil then you've stepped off in a especially dangerous place and and you are going down an especially dangerous road from a societal perspective this is tied in with the idea that this man thinks what he's doing is perfectly humane and progressive and this is the great danger that Mishkin effectively points out at the end, is that what you have is a young man who has been caught up in a bad idea. And therefore, his conscience is not convicted that he is in fact wrong, but he believes that his evil doing is morally justified. And this is incredibly dangerous. This is, this is the worry, that this is not normal at all. That yes, there have always been murderers and there will continue to, be, continue to be murderers. But the idea of being morally vindicated through your murder, even after being caught, convicted, tried, found guilty, and imprisoned, is an especially dangerous thing. Now, to be fair... There have always been people whose consciences are seared to such a degree that, that they feel no guilt. But the danger here that, that Mishkin points out very, very clearly is that young people are susceptible to these ideas. And if you allow those ideas to be propagated in your society, in your culture, in your community, 
you're increasing the probability that an individual young person in the whims of youth will be caught up and will buy into this ideology, believing themselves to be doing right as they enact great evil. That young people could be caught up into a fervor and and thereby be, be used for, for what's wrong. This hits particularly home for me and ties into the political environment that we're living in uh, in, a, in a specifically poignant way for me because of my experience with the ironically named Antifa. <laughs> ironically named indeed. Um, I felt their boot heel, the metaphorical boot heel of the anti-fascists myself, um, and I've, I've experienced what they're willing to do firsthand. So now that I've told you a story written from 150 years ago, I'm going to jump to a story from about four years ago. Four years ago, that pivotal time. Not quite four years, but it's getting close. I believe it was January 20th, 2016. Or no, 2017, right? It was the, the new year. Inauguration. I was living in Seattle at the time, and the right-wing provocateur Milo Yiannopoulos was coming to the University of Washington to speak. He had been invited with all of the proper precautions by one of the student groups, and he had already been to a few other locations, so he was on a tour, and this was the particular day he would be at the University of Washington campus. I thought this would be an interesting opportunity to hear what a right-wing provocateur would say. I, I knew his general personality, and I found it a little distasteful at first, um, and yet, knowing the kinds of people he was interacting with, I just was willing to, I was willing to tolerate him as a necessary evil, effectively. That, that somebody had to have the guts to go out and poke some people's buttons, um, that he was not exam- exactly a model of how to have dialogue, but he's not trying to have dialogue. He's trying to show the instability in the discourse, right? He's effectively a symptom of an increasingly uh, harsh and contradictory and, you know, anxiety-filled, an increasingly partisan, there we go, an increasingly partisan world. He's a symptom of that, where he wielded the partisanship for the sake of his own uh, gain. To, to promote himself and to promote his ideas. And what made him particularly effective at this was that uh, he was on the right wing and very vocally homosexual. And so this was one of his, his big you know, branding points was, oh, I'm, I'm part of this group that is usually left wing, but I, I don't actually believe that the left wing is right on, this, on these other points. Um, so I thought this would be an interesting opportunity to explore his thought process, his, his rhetoric, and see what he does. Um, and you know what? It was free. I mean, it's not like it cost me anything to go there. At least that was the understanding, that this would simply be some 
frankly, uh, idiot walking onto campus, making a lot of noise uh, for his own brand's sake, and then leaving. I was I was not uh, anticipating what happened. The square in front of the lecture hall was full of people. I mean, not not full to the brim, but the line to get in to this uh, presentation, this lecture, was enormous. Lots of people there. And because of the disturbances that had occurred after the election itself, uh, there was a significant police presence from the Seattle PD. They were there to kind of keep things in good order, and there was a a fencing around the lecture hall so that people would only be allowed in one by one. And off to the side, there was a specific section, as I arrived, where a counter-protest was in effect. There were a lot of people dressed in black with their signs shouting loudly and being generally obnoxious, and everybody who stood in line was standing in line. Um, This, to my knowledge, seemed perfectly normal. You know, we're just all waiting here. They, they want to do some yelling. They're going to do their yelling over there in their corner. Okay, fine. Okay, fine. You know what? I'll ignore them. They'll ignore the speaker. We'll all be fine. We'll all move on. But that's not the world we live in. That's not the crazy, hyper-partisan, religiously political world we live in. And I learned that. I learned that. I did not think it was as bad as, as I found out, right? I, I was in line, and I was actually getting toward the front. When there was a bit of a tussle around the entire perimeter, um, and the police were put on alert, and they stopped people from entering the building. And I'm not 100% sure why, but uh, the line then kind of sat in place, and nobody else got in. There were a few people who were already inside, and uh, I believe the speaker was one of them. He had a bodyguard of ex-Navy SEALs, so I think he was fine. But uh, as far as I remember, there was an incident regarding a confrontation when he tried to get in. Okay, so we're all just sitting there. And that's when things got a little bit weird. Because... As I'm standing in line, having conversations with the people around me, who admittedly, actually, are from a wide variety of political standpoints, right? I had some hyper-partisan Trump people who were all rah-rah, and then I was actually engaged in a fascinating conversation with a liberal who said, oh, I think he's an idiot, but I want to hear what he has to say anyway. And I, we, had a, we had an absolutely fascinating discussion because he— he was there, and he was in line, and he was willing to at least engage in conversation, and we had a you know very rousing time of it. That was until objects started being thrown in our direction and into the crowd from the counter-protest area. And the first of these that I remember were those small Christmas ornaments, and they'd been filled with blue paint. So effectively, it was just something incredibly annoying. It was a handmade paint grenade, I suppose, uh, is the best way I could describe it. More a nuisance than anything else, a a legitimate nuisance. Uh, I mean, nobody wants to get hit in the face with uh, an, an object that could shatter 
and has paint inside of it. And it's going to get all over, all over your clothes. You're going to ruin a perfectly good set of clothes because you don't show up in public with, you know, jeans and t-shirt kind of thing. You show up with something nice. You're going to a political event. Uh, so people are getting their clothes ruined, and that's kind of kind of annoying, right? And kind of not exactly right. I mean, people do have the freedom to assemble, do they not? Peaceably. When there's a counter-protest that isn't being peaceful, does that get protected? Well, it seems it was. Because they accelerated. The police continued to hold people off of the line and not allow anybody inside, and the counter-protest was not broken up. In fact, the police stood down as the paint grenades were thrown into the crowd. Now, where we're standing is made up of a lot of bricks. Red brick. And I don't know exactly who did it. All I know is that after the paint grenades came in, a couple of pieces of brick that had been shattered into multiple pieces came in afterwards in my general direction. Very close to my head, honestly. Um, And I was in a crowd, so it wasn't that I was being specifically targeted, but the crowd of people who were assembled from diverse political opinions, right, was getting bricks thrown at them by a counter-protest. The line scattered, but a lot of people stayed in the area because they wanted to see if it would get opened up, if the counter-protest would get shut down. I picked up those two pieces of brick and moved them to a corner of the square, tried to get them out of the way so that they wouldn't get picked up by some idiot. Came back, was hanging out, still kind of hopeful that it would turn out all right, and I'm finding people to talk to, and it's kind of interesting, you know, getting to meet people from different political things. It's It's a social event. It was fantastic. But there was a tussle that occurred between a few of the people who were there and the counter-protesters, and somebody got shot. Finally, the police move in. The person gets uh, taken to the hospital. No lasting damage, but the uh, event is basically off at this point. And, and all that I remember of... The, the rest that I remember of, of that night was a massive mob of people walking up, having come from the city center, or at least that direction, and taking over the entire square, creating weird drum circles and um, effectively ensuring that anybody who came in with the wrong political opinion knew that they were not welcome. And what, what kind of hurt was... As I was getting in line, like I had actually seen one of the counter protesters, I'd met, I'd met one of them, and she was a drama student, uh, graduate level drama student, who had been a TA for one of my classes uh, in in college, and she recognized me, and she did the typical, oh, I'm so disappointed at you, and. I just kind of smiled and said, you know, hey, you know, stay safe and have a good one. Um, Because she had every right to be there, every right to to put her opinion out there. 
And I, I'm quite confident, given that how I, what I know of her character, that she wasn't throwing stuff into the crowd, and she, in fact, would have discouraged it. Admittedly, I don't know that much about her character, but I, you kind of get the feel of a person. But there were people in that crowd of counter-protesters who were influenced enough by the ideology that was going on on that side that they believed that the harm they would cause by throwing bricks into a crowd of people was good. That they, they believed that, that they were righteous in their cause. They believed that they were good and that they were morally, like not, not even morally neutral, but that it was a moral imperative to attack people. Over the next six months, I got other opportunities to interact with Antifa and and learned further more uh, learned learned more about their their methodology, their ideology, and the people behind it. Their inability to have conversations, unlike the the liberal who was actually in line and willing to engage in a, th- a philosophical debate, Antifa was not. Their iron boot was going to be placed firmly on the neck of the opposition and squash it from giving any voice at all. The next next time Milo Yiannopoulos was scheduled to speak, Berkeley was set on fire. Berkeley, California, was set on fire. People in red hats were punched in the face, were maced, were assaulted. This is out of control. This is unacceptable behavior. And this is exactly our due. We've been building this society for years. Slowly and subversively through public public education, through, more importantly, the media, through our technological surrender to bubbles, and the increasing radicalization of our youth, um, our people, the increasing inability to communicate with one another. I'm a conservative, and I I honestly think it's it's partially our fault, because I'm a conservative, I'm willing to be self-doubting, that we were too nice. And if you look at what now, now, what does that mean? All right. It doesn't mean we should go be violent. It means intellectually, we got to stand. We got to pick up uh, our, our microphones and actually speak the truth and, and suffer what may. I would love the opportunity to go out to another speech in another radical area, take my cross with me, and go and listen to that speech and and trust that we still live in a decent enough society that I'm not going to get killed. That if I do take a break to the head, it'll look really good in a legal case, or at the very least, I can take that and suffer that and be encouraged and encourage those around me that I'm not just going to fold. I don't know what the right answer is. What I do know is what we're doing now isn't working. What we're doing now is shouting past one another. What we're doing now is not teaching wisdom 
to the youth who are set adrift in a world they believe only has a few years left. In a world where they believe that unless their progressive, humane ideas are put into practice, the entire world will collapse and, and everything that they love will be taken away. They're, they've been whipped up into a fury and they're not listening. And this is dangerous. This is dangerous. Not because young people have never made mistakes in the past. They, they have. Not because young people have never been whipped into a frenzy in the past. They have. Even in America. I mean, we've had, we've had idiots before. We still do. The question is, where's the morality that underpins it all? What is the value? What do, what do, they, what do they consider right and wrong? Because once you get an ideology that takes hold, which believes that harming other people is morally justified in all cases, if it advances your political position, you have, ex you have welcomed war. Right? You're engaged in war. That's what it is. And we have a, we have a serious problem with that. We have a serious problem with, with an open war on our streets in, in certain places. We saw this earlier in the year. It somewhat died down as the weather's gotten colder. Thank God for that. But there are many places in our country that have a terminal problem, a terminal illness, an ideological sickness. And I've seen it. I've felt it. And I don't want to keep that going. And here's the thing. If you think you live somewhere where that's not going to touch you, you're lying to yourself. You're kidding yourself. It's already there. And in fact, they're in charge. They're in charge. You're the resistance now. So ask yourself the question, how do I live in a world that actively encourages immorality, the breaking of the Fourth Commandment, which ordains the patriarchy, the breaking of the Fifth Commandment, which ordains the right to life, the breaking of the Sixth Commandment, which ordains the right to chastity, the breaking of the Seventh Commandment, which ordains the right to private property. We live in a, a society that is actively undermining all of those. And yeah, you know, keep going. The uh, cancel culture, breaking of the Eighth Commandment, open slander my, uh, of, of my neighbor's right to, to be up to a fair trial of an impartial jury. No, that's out the window. Lynch mobs, right? Digital lynch mobs everywhere. We have to be careful. The question becomes that Russia, Russia had 50 years before Dostoevsky's insights to the undermining of their civilization and the institution of communism. How much time do we have? Or are we already too late? And if we're already too late, how do we build the next world? How do we make a moral society out of 
the ashes? How do we actually make something good when we are the resistance? We're tiny. We're insignificant. We don't matter. I don't care what you have, what, you know, what wonderful books you read. Frankly, I, I, I love that I read Russian novels. Average man is not going to read a Russian novel, let alone listen to a podcast about it. We can't keep trusting in our own intellectual establishments and our own intellectual purity to be our bulwark against an encroaching sickness. We can't just just go back to the tomes and the great books that we read if we don't talk to other people about it because demographics is real and the power of a larger crowd is real. And the and, and the frankly, the average person is not is not always going to be capable of understanding the types of arguments we usually make. This is one of the reasons I find provocateurs fascinating is because they can formulate things in in ways that other people wouldn't. Right? They're, they're brave enough to actually go out and and say something that might be off color, but formulates it formulates an idea in a way that an average person can understand it. Right? This is the war we're fighting right now. It is a war of words. It is a war of ideas. And if we think that us getting better at our own ideas is going to be sufficient, we're halfway there, but we're going to lose. Sun Tzu says, If you know yourself and you know your enemy, you need not fear the outcome of a hundred battles. If you know yourself and not the enemy, for every victory you will have a defeat. If you know neither yourself nor the enemy, well, basically you're toast. What's the point? You've already lost. So we need to start learning what we actually believe. We need to start knowing how to articulate what we actually think. We need to remember how to pass it down, and we need to understand that we have to have loud voices. We have to speak a little bit boldly and a little bit brashly and risk the consequences because nobody else is going to speak for us. And when somebody is out there speaking, we need to support them. We need to encourage them. We need to share their voice as far as we can. We need to stop thinking that every single person's voice is going to matter because we need the best. We need the best of the best. We need to, to compete, yes, but we, once we find somebody that stands out, we need to support them. We need to get there. I hope that you find my podcast valuable, but trust me, it's low on the list of objective, like high value podcasts. It's me sharing what I have to what I have to say. And one of the things I do know though is the other half of that equation, right? Not only knowing yourself, but knowing your enemy. We are not dealing with an intellectually honest opponent. We are dealing with an opponent that already has control of the world. Right? We, our fight is not against people. It's against the spiritual powers of darkness. It always has been. Don't look to the past for the golden age. Look to the past for encouragement. Look to the martyrs for encouragement. And trust that what comes next is good, is for your good. But don't think, and, and, and 
interruption, interjection. Don't don't think that you should completely become absorbed by your enemy's doctrines because that's equally dangerous. Right? Don't don't study it so hard that you become that you believe it or that you function on their turf. But a good general needs to know the enemy's movements. They need to know the enemy's ways. So I'd encourage you, if you want to be a leader in the intellectual warfare we're waging, in, in the battle of words that we are currently engaged in, if you want to be a leader, know your enemy. Respect their danger. Respect that you still have some time left because you have the freedom to speak and you have the freedom, some freedom to bear arms and you have some freedom to assembly. Well, not as much as before, but you still got some of it left. So understand it's not a lost cause. But you have to understand that they're playing for keeps. They're playing to win. They have skin in the game. They've, they've dedicated their lives to this. And frankly, a lot of these people don't have anything else to lose because of the system that we've got going right now. They're destitute if they don't win. They're debt-ridden, way over their heads, and they have no skills to speak of. That's what a lot of these people are at. They've been, they've been coddled for years in order to, well, appease their own interests and desires and boredom. And, and, and now they're latching on to the one thing that's going to allow them to move forward. Saying don't do that is not a sufficient solution. Saying, oh, well, you know it's wrong to murder was not a, pro a complete solution for the murderer in the story. Because he, f he no longer believed that it was. Or at least that's the argument the lawyer was willing to make. Was that it was no longer wrong to murder. This is an inflection point. Now, how big of an inflection point, I don't know. But we've changed who we are, we've changed our, our way of seeing the world, and we've changed who tells us what to think. And it's not just us, it's the enemy too. It's the other, and the enemy. Satan, right? And all his work to undermine and destroy good order. He's there. And he is crafty. And Babel is true. The, the misunderstanding of people is true. So don't think that just speaking your own classic ideas is going to solve people's problem when they don't speak the same language as you. We're talking past one another. As, 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 as communities, we're talking past one another. And just wait and see. In a week and a half, if there aren't fires and riots in the streets... And if, if, there, if there are not, ask yourself why, because that's important. And if there are, you already know why. But ask yourself if what you're doing to actually encourage good order in your society. i got a few suggestions myself, but that's for another day, on which I will pitch, and perhaps reveal some of the secrets of the 113487. <laughs>
I bet you don't know what that is. But for those of you who do know, and, well, frankly, for those of you who don't, I'll catch you next time.